I want to welcome you to Relevant Faith Church. My name is Mike Womer. I am the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith, and we are excited that you have joined us today. We've been in a series here called The Word, where we have literally been getting into God's Word, understanding its importance, its value, its power, all of those things for us. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't, if you've missed any of them, they're all online at rfcpeoria.com. You can click the listen link, and you can get online, and you can listen to all messages that you may have missed. Thank you, Scott, for that. Um, and so this week, we're going to talk a little bit. The title of my message this week is, Who Does God Say That I Am, and What Does He Think About Me? These are pretty valuable questions to ask and understand when it comes to following after God and even studying and understanding His Word, because Oftentimes, we can read the Word of God and have this doom or gloom mentality to think that, oh my gosh, I am such a failure, I've screwed up, I've sinned, I've caused all these problems, God must be mad at me, and He must be putting His big iron fist upon my head. There are entire denominations of Christianity built around that mentality, and that's not at all what God is thinking about you in those moments, and so we have been in this series for, this is the fourth week, and just to give you a quick highlight of the first three weeks, we talked about how God's word cleanses us, how it prunes us, you know, it, it, it cuts away things that, that are ultimately causing problems for us, and then it nourishes us to grow and become all that God wants us to become. On the, the second week of this series, my good friend Nate Terry preached, and he preached this powerful message about how there is life in the word. And if you did not listen to that message, go to rfcpeoria.com, listen to that one, because he lit the building on fire with that message. It was powerful. He was passionate. And as if you've ever heard Nate preach, you know he's always passionate about God's word. And so, but it was a great message. And then last week, we talked about a message that I called, I Believe the Scriptures. And um, we talked about how God's word is, is it, the word of God is God breathed that it's meant to teach and correct and prepare and equip, and that ultimately it compels us into the good work that God has already planned for us. But understanding that this, every word in this Bible was breathed by God. Yes, it may have been written by man, and yes, man may be flawed, but it is breathed by God. And I believe, and we believe as the church here, that it is perfect in its writing. Where it is imperfect is in its, in, in its interpretation by so many people. And so that's why we encourage, read the Word. Get into the Word, dive into it, study it, and understand it for yourself. Don't just simply believe something because somebody told you that that's what it is. I did that for so many years of my life where I was just under teaching, and I was under good, solid, sound, biblical teaching, but I just believed what I was told all the time and never really studied it for myself. And it was only when I studied it for myself that God became more real, that I actually understand things like how he, that he knows my name and the, and, and the power that that has for my life. And so I want to encourage you to do that. So today we are going to address who this word says that we are and what the writer, the author of this word, thinks about us. And so powerfully and so important is to know who we are and to know what we are called to do in life. Matter of fact, we seek and search to try to find ourselves all the time. Anybody ever heard that? you got to find yourself. And so it's an interesting concept because a lot of people will say, oh, you should need to take some time off and find yourself. 
But the Bible tells us that we're supposed to die to ourselves. So if we're supposed to die to ourselves and find ourselves based on what somebody else does, there's a contradiction that takes place in that, in that statement. And so we have, many of us have taken personality tests and other assessments. We learn that we are a lion or a beaver. We are an ENFP on some scale. We are an activator or a competitor. We might be a high I or a high D or some number on an Enneagram scale. We've, we've done these things in efforts to understand ourselves on a deeper level. And none of these things are wrong in by themselves. Matter of fact, they are wonderful tools to help understand who God created you to be. But more than anything, more than any, any personality test, more than any, anything that you might ta- take or talk about who you are, this right here has more to say about who you are than any Enneagram or any, any personality profile test that you might take. I use them personally. I do. I use them personally because it helped me better understand me and honestly helps me become a better leader for those that, uh, that I am required and, and called to lead. But it's not the end all to who I am and who God says that I am and, and what he ultimately thinks about me. And so I got a, a note sheet that you have. It has your announcements on it. It has a few blanks. It's going to be simple today as far as your work is concerned because there's going to be a whole, whole lot of scripture that is talked about today. And so in my years as a believer, which is a little over 20 years serving the Lord, what I found is that God has a lot to say about what he thinks about us. The whole Bible is full of his thoughts towards you. But if I could summarize it in a, in a short space, because I don't have as much time as I, prefer, I, I may like to have in this particular topic, I'm just going to highlight just a few things that God says about you and what he thinks of you in this journey of life. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 27. The Bible says, so God created human beings in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. You have to understand at very at the very least you are God's creation. Created in his image, meaning he has this image of you and humanity that he said, this is who you are, and I am going to create you this way. I created you male, and I created you female. I created you to be different and not to be the same. And so that's one of the most important things to understand is, first, God created you. Then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. So before anybody gets high and mighty about who you might be, just remember, I preach this message to teenagers, and I still think it has an application. Maybe it loses something in the way I communicate it. But we are all dirtbags. So before you think your dirt is better than someone else's dirt, understand that you were first formed from dirt. The dust of the ground, the Bible says. And then it says he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. And the man became a living person. So even after he was shaped in dirt, he still wasn't living. He had to have the breath of God breathed into him to be able to then be living. So what you need to understand about about those particular two passages of Scripture, and we're going to get into a few more, is that you are valuable. You have value. You have this exceeding and great value. We have this thought in this, this, this idea in 
in society that we're only as valuable as what we do or what we have. But I'm telling you that your value was established in the very beginning when he said, I'm going to make you in my image. Because God's value is supersedingly and, and, and way outside of anything we could possibly imagine or even think. And so he said, I'm going to make you in my image. So therefore, the value that I have, I'm going to extend to you. Yes, I used dirt to shape you, but then you needed my very breath to live. Anything that has been given the breath of God has more value than anything that God ever created. We just haven't quite gotten to that understanding just yet. We're going to get there in just a minute. Let's look at Psalm 139. I told you you're getting a lot of scripture about this today. This is a lot more scripture and less interjection of me and my thoughts. But Psalm 139, 13 through 16, the Bible says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. If you don't have value, then the creator of all creation is not going to spend this much time watching you. Matter of fact, he was watching you before you could ever speak, before you could ever utter a word, before you could even breathe your own breath, he was already watching you. Sounds kind of creeperish, I know. But when you have a God who loves you, he's looking at that creation, and he's looking at it in that womb, and he's saying, wow, that's perfect. There's nothing wrong with what I've made. This is beautiful. I'm watching. And he's watching this take place. You know, the, when it says you made the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb, there's so much depth just to that passage of Scripture to understand that he literally, the image is literally a sewing together of your DNA. He, that's, that's what he did. He sewed it together. You ever seen the, the image of a DNA shows this interwoven thing? He's like knitting this together when he made you who you are. So there's no such thing as something wrong with God's creation. It's only how we ourselves view how God's creation or how others view it. But in itself, the creation is you, wonderful. He said you, you want, your workmanship is marvelous. He called you a work of art, unique in its creation. No DNA strand is exactly the same. Your children have similar but not the same. You have no, no two fingerprints are the same. There might, might be some similar curves, but they're not the same. Because he made you, broke the mold, made someone else, broke the mold, made someone else, broke the mold. There's only one of you, uniquely created. And we ought to celebrate the uniqueness of how God made you. You're not broken. You're not, you're not, you're not this wretched creation of God's. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Matter of fact, the psalmist said in verse in Psalm 8 that you yet you made them, talking about you, creation, humanity, only a little lower than God, and crowned them with glory and honor. Woo! That's the value that he sees in you. He made you just a little bit lower than him and then crowned you with his glory and crowned you with his honor. 
That's the value that you have. Can I, can I help you for a second? Will you stop, please, for the love of all that is holy, stop talking poorly about God's creation, whether that's you or someone else. We make these bold declarations about other people and how stupid they are. Tell me, you, tell, uh, tell me I ain't lying about somebody in here, right? I, anybody drive a car? Everybody around you stupid in that moment. Trust me, I am the guy calling you stupid if you're on the road. For real. I'm just, can I just be real and honest? Is it okay for the pastor to be transparent? I'm just like you. I'm, try, I'm trying to figure this thing out just like you. But can, can we, for the love of all that is holy and right, not talk poorly or degrade or de- try to destroy God's creation? Because you were made in the image of God. And what you're saying is that while I am made in the image of God, I don't know what image you were made in. Because you're all kinds of stupid. That's not, there's nothing helpful about that. There's nothing glorious about that. There's nothing honoring about that. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when he said, just before the passage I read you, he said, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. There's a whole theology thing about the us in that, but I don't have time for that right now. But he said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So you have to notice that all along the creation journey, God referred to each day as being good. Read the, read the journey of creation. Read Genesis j- chapter 1. Read all of creation. Read about it. He said, it was good. That word good means it was pleasant to sight. So when he created the earth, and he created the waters, and he separated them, and there's land, and then there's sea. He said it was good. And he created the animals and the birds and all the vegetation. He said it was good. It was very pleasant to his sight. But then he created you. And when he created you, he said it was exceedingly pleasant. As a matter of fact, it's the only place that in all of his creation, when he looked at all of it, all of it together, he said it's good. But it wasn't very good until he created you. That means it was pleasant. It was all pleasant to see, but it became exceedingly pleasant. It became astronomically greater than it could ever have been the moment he created you. There's value in God's people. There's value in his creation. And the more we do, the more we do to destroy that value or minimize that value or crush that value, the more we are saying to God, you screwed up. And I don't know about you. Last thing I ever want to say to my creator is that he screwed up. But he, he created in this journey, he, God crowned you in glory. And he crowned you in honor. It was the final act. It was the climax of the final act of his creation story. You ever go watch a play and they have this climax and there's this moment that everybody's on the edge of their seats and they're gripping their head, their, their, their armrests and they're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And then it happens. You're like, wow, that was awesome. Every movie has it. Every play has it. That was you. When he created you, that was you. It was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. 
And I believe if I could take a little bit of a liberty in the creation story when he was talking about the us and the us was standing there and the us was watching creation take place, that when he did this, the us was like, whoo, come on. He, what? Are you serious now? Look at what he just did. He created humanity. And we might think in humanity in all of its greatness is awful. And you know what? There are some, there are some people making some pretty bad decisions in, in, across humanity. But can I tell you something? Still created by God. Still God's people. Whether they are submitted to him or not is, does not determine whether they were exceedingly pleasant when they were created. Has no determination as to whether or not God was pleased with what he was knitting in the womb. And so we have to realize that we have, he did all of this, all this creation, all this talk about how great and, and how glorious and how honoring we are. He did this in spite of the fact that, the, that he would know that we would fall and that we would fail. He knew this. We act like this, was, this caught God by surprise. Can you believe that God, God can you seriously believe me? I, if I'm God, and you, most people should be thankful that I'm not, and I'm in, I am thankful that I'm not, but if I'm God, and I see someone say, do something, and they're like, can you believe they just did that? Yeah, I kind of had an idea that they might do that, you know, because I, I created them. And I gave them the DNA, and I gave them all this, all this personality. I kind of knew that if they didn't access the part of me that they should, that this, this might happen. He's not caught by surprise. He's not caught by surprise by people and how they act. He's not caught by surprise about what happens in the earth. He's not caught by surprise. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Anyone that believes that they are less than marvelous, less than a workmanship, less than a beautiful, unique piece of art has then exchanged the truth of what God says for a lie that I don't know who said. But I can tell you where it came from. And it came from the enemy who very seriously wants to destroy your value. Because let me tell you something. There's, there's nothing more powerful than a believer in Christ who also understands that they have value. Ooh. Talent, no. Value, yes. They're very different. Talented folks can get up and do a lot of things and, and attract a lot of people and do a lot of things. But value is what brings substance and when someone realizes that they have value, whew, the enemy's like, hold up. No, 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 I got to fix that. Remember, 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 remember back in the day when, when you, used to get, you used to doing all the different things and, and the sin that you were living in? That, that's really who you are. I don't know who this other person you think you are is, but that's not who you are. This, this is who you are. Or, you know, that, that person who abused you when you were a child, that, that's who you are. That's, that's how valuable you are that someone else decided that they were going to wreck your life for you because that's the value that you actually have. That's the word, that's the enemy and how he comes in to try to steal what God was trying to do. After all, we know that he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, have an abundance of life, life to the full. Talking about overflowing life. But you don't have it if you don't have the word. It's very simple. We are considered dead in our sin, yet John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For he so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life.
dead in sin, I give you my son. Created marvelously, wonderfully, act of work, unique, wrecked creation, I give you my son. Yes, I will sacrifice my son, my only son. His blood will be poured out just simply to eradicate your sin so that you might have that eternity with God. Your, your value in God was determined at creation and sealed on the cross. He said, I'm, I've created you in my image. You're wonderfully made. You're, you're a work of art. You're unique. And I'm going to send my son to suffer and die to ensure that that value is seen by all the earth. He created you in value, and he sealed it with the work of Christ. So you are valuable. That's what the Bible says about you. Number two, the Bible says that you are, very simply, you are new. You are new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. Let me say that one more time. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. Because unless there's a reflection of a new life, you still live in an old life. And in an old life, there's very little that God can and wants to do with an old life. He wants a new life. It's kind of like you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. We all want the blessing of God. We all want God to do something fresh. We pray, God, do something fresh, do something new, because we want to see something fresh and new put in what we already have. And we're not seeing it, so it's got to be God's problem. God's just not moving. He's just not speaking. He's just not, he's just, he just, he just might not be happy with me. No, he's just looking for you to become new. Whether you're becoming new for the very first time and giving your life to Christ, or you're on this journey of being made new. If, you, if you're here for any length of time, you'll hear a word preached quite often that you have been saved, you are being saved, and that you will ultimately be saved. And if I could just use a different word and say you are made new, you are being made new, and that ultimately you will be made new. That's salvation sanctification, if you want to use a churchy word. I don't like churchy words. And then, ultimately, when Christ returns and we receive our glorified body, I've been made new. But the reality is, you cannot have something fresh and new taking place in your life if you're sticking in it in an old skin. And that's not just salvation. That's, like, that's just life. We kind of want to live our way, do our thing, judge our people that we want to judge. But, oh, over here we want God doing something fresh and something new. So we can use it to judge some folks. It's quiet in here. Maybe I'm preaching too hard. But the old is gone. The new has begun. Romans 8, chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 tells us, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. So if you are out there, brother and sister in Christ, and you are condemning those that belong to Christ, let me tell you something. All you're doing is wasting your breath and your time because there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. So stop trying to condemn, folks, because all you're doing is wasting your time, wasting the breath that God gave you, 
You could be speaking life into someone else rather than condemning someone for doing something you don't quite understand. Let me move on. In verse 2 he says, And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Guess what? You're being made. Oh, man, there's like three people listening to me this morning. You are being made. Come on, you're being made new. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says, But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. This is all part of the being made new process. You want to hear another one? John chapter 10, verse number 29. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. You are being made new every day. That's what this is about. This is about knowing who you are, knowing your value, knowing what you bring to the table, and knowing that God is doing the work to make you new. He's renewing your mind every day as long as you allow him to. And as long as you keep this wineskin new, he's going to always pour new wine in it. That's just the way he works. The minute you start to let this wineskin become old, then you start to get stale. And let me tell you something, stale wine or stale food is no good food. Anybody ever reach into a bag of chips, grab a chip, Throw it in your mouth, expecting this wonderful experience, and you chomp it, and your face is like, it's stale. Right? It's stale. Let me tell you, in a, let, me, let, me, let me make a spiritual application here. If you are that chip or that bag of chips that wasn't sealed up quite tightly, and you go and speak something into someone's life, spiritually, their spirit might be like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about right now. That's a stale word. That's a stale wine. I don't need any of that in my life. I need a new wine. I need a fresh word. I need that rhema word that comes from God that's fresh. Number three, so you are valuable. You are new. And somebody just needs to grab this one and just live in it for a while. It's called you are loved. You are so loved. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, imitate God. Let's just stop there for a moment. If you are a believer in Christ, your, one of your sole responsibilities is to imitate him. Matter of fact, Christians were called Christians by other people. Not by the Bible, not by a prayer that was spoken but by other people in Antioch, they called them Christians because they were like Christ. So if we could just write there, you yourself are loved. Do you know the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, the one that's at work with you, the one that goes to, if you're here visiting from another church that goes to your church, or the one you see at the grocery store, or one of these crazy folks buying up all the toilet paper, they need love. And the love that they need and the love that they're going to get is going to come from you. It's the way God designed it. He goes on to say, in everything you do, because you are his dear children, live a life filled with love. Live a life filled with love. 
following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. You know that if your life doesn't look sacrificial for the body of Christ, that it's not a pleasing aroma. Remember, I talk about this, right? I preach this, I teach this, that you can learn everything you need from God's word because he speaks it. But you can make some certain assessments concerning God's word based on what it doesn't say. So if he says that he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God, that means that if there is another aroma that isn't so pleasing to God, and that's the aroma that would come that is self-serving. It comes from my desire to be, to do me. Here people say, oh, you know, I'm just going to do me. Unless you is a reflection of Christ, then I suggest you don't do you. Just saying. I'm going to let all them do them, and I'm just going to do me. And doing me usually means I'm going to be over here, I'm going to ignore them, I'm just going to do my thing and, 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 and walk my path. But if your path does not include you loving someone who you might consider to be unlovable or you might consider to be a little bit less than you are, then, then your aroma that you're giving off is not so pleasing. Probably somewhere in the equivalent of like a 15 or 16-year-old boy who just got done playing sports. You ever smell that smell? Whew. Nothing pleasing about that aroma. Got to open up all the windows in the house and burn up the clothes. I'm being foolish now, I know. But live a life filled with love, according to Paul, as he was teaching the church in Ephesus. Be an example of Christ in that love. You know, think about, like, if you have children, I mean, I'm going to chat with you for a moment if you have children. Think about the pain that you experience when one of your children is hurting. And there's nothing you can do to console them but hold them. You can't fix the owie. You can't fix the disastrous choice that they made. All you can do is what? Love them. That's how, that's how God looks at us. He can't always fix the disastrous choice. He can forgive you from that disastrous choice. You'll face the consequences of that disastrous choice, but he, his love never changes even in the midst of it all. Here's what, I actually had this conversation with someone once. It, it just shattered. It shocked my understanding as to who they thought God was. Somebody had done something very, very wrong, and they were about to face jail time for what they did. And so they repented, and they were asking God forgiveness, and they were on their knees, and they were crying out to God. And I was just touched, like, wow, I got to walk this journey with them. And I prayed with them and assured them that they were forgiven and assured them that Jesus loved them. Then came sentencing, and they ended up in jail for a couple of years. And the very same person who was on their knees in tears crying out to God then said, well, why would God send me to jail? I'm like, hold on a minute. I was like, what did, you, what did you think was going to happen because you asked God into your heart and asked for forgiveness? I thought he'd eliminate jail. Yeah, that's not how this thing works. You made a choice. There's a consequence for your choice. The consequence for your choice and God's love are, have nothing to do with each other. God's love is infinite and it's without merit. There's no, nothing you can do to earn it. 
But your choice is going to be a reflect. Your, your consequence is going to be a reflection of your choice, and that's okay. You know how many amazing men of God and women of God are locked up in jail and have been for twenty plus years. I'm talking powerful men and women of God locked up in jail and have been for the last twenty plus years. See, God is not a fix it. It's not a little. It's not a like. Oh, here's my issues. Here, God, fix it. Whew, dodge that bullet. I don't have to deal with any of my problems or any of the issues that I cause myself. That's not how God works. He loves you through them. He lets you know that you're not alone through them. And what's amazing is he loves us more than what we love our children. If you imagine the love you have for your mom, the love you have for your children, God's love is greater by comparison than we can even imagine. And so he says in Zephaniah, the prophet Zephaniah says in, in chapter 3, verse 17, he said, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs with his love and if you think about it i love this image because i'm going to break this down a little bit for you what's my time look like yeah i got a little bit i'm going to break this down a little bit for you because it's there's so much power in this phrase in this passage of scripture and in this word that i, I want you to i want you to uh, to be able to uh, take in and apply to yourself is in the very first part he says he is living among you think about that the god of heaven the creator of heaven and earth is living among us. How is he living among us? He sent Jesus to suffer and die, who then ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, who then lives where? In us. And so it's that Holy Spirit that lives in us that caused God to dwell with us. If he didn't love you, why would he live with you? If he didn't love you, why would he live in you? Let me tell you, I love this church. I love all the people in this church. I love the, I'm I'm so honored with the opportunity to pastor this church. And I try to be as there as humanly possible. But it's, it's hard sometimes. And I look at some folks sometimes, not in here, but some other folks sometimes, and be like, Seriously, do you not get it? What is going on with you, man? I don't know that I can live with y'all. And I don't think y'all can live with me. I'm saying that goes both ways, okay? It's not just the pastor couldn't live with me. Y'all don't want to live with the pastor. You know how I know my wife's in kids' church? There was no amen. She's to be the first to tell you. So if if God didn't love you, why would he live in you? And then number two, the other part of that is when it says he is a mighty savior. I don't even need to describe this, explain that, do I? He saved you from your sin so that you can have eternity with him. He goes on to say he delights in us with gladness. I like this part. I do, I like this part because this is worth investigating a little bit deeper. When you take delight, when he takes delight in us, it's literally an action word. It has a physical manifestation attached to it. You know, we think, we think oh, I'm delighting in my children. And, and, and for us to delight in our children, sometimes it's a matter of we're sitting on the couch and we're watching them and we just smile like, oh, that's so sweet. Look at him. Look at her. 
I want you to remember that moment when they're 15. So that's, that's, free, that's free right there. Yeah, little kids, remember that when they're 15. If you don't have kids, remember that when they're 15. If your grandparents, send them off back home when they're 15. No, but for real, you look at your child and you say, wow, so sweet, so wonderful. I like watching them. That's not what God's saying. When he says he takes delight, there is a physical manifestation. So when you're doing something that is pleasing to God, he's like this. Come on. Look at that. That's what I'm talking about. That's my creation. Yeah, I did that right there. That's, that's the taking delight. It's not just this I'm watching with this nice smile on my face. There's an action. There's a manifested action when, that, that is physical in nature when he takes delight in you. He's smiling. He's clapping. He's telling, He's like, come on over here. All, all, all of us, you know, the us that was up there at creation, hey, us, come over here. Look, look at what I did. Look at what my creation is doing right now. He's taking delight in you. Imagine that if, the, the God, if you would for a moment, the God of creation, the God of all creation is turning all to heaven and say, hey, I love that person right there. Hey, that's Becky right there. I love her. That's my girl. That's, that's how he does it. That's he's showing. He's taking delight in his people. It's a, it's a physical manifestation. That word gladness just simply means an exceeding amount of joy. So what do you do? What do you do when there's an exceeding amount of joy in your heart? What Do you just stand there staring blankly at the situation? You at the very least, for some of you super, super like tight introverted people, you at least smile. People like me, they kind of get a little shouty and a little loud. I just can't help myself. The same way I am shouting in church when I'm excited is the same way I shout on the basketball court when my son scores or the volleyball court when my daughter does his, her thing or the golf course when my daughter hits strokes one down the middle of the course. I'm like, whoo, come on. I'm, you can hear it in the video, too, because I'm that guy. I take video. And you can hear me in the background like, come on. That's my son. There's some of the players on his team like, man, your dad's funny. He's always yelling. Because there's this joy that wells up in me that I've, I've got to express it. I can't just be like, oh, that's why I don't go watch golf. Somebody hits a putt that's like 40 feet long, I'm going to scream. I'm like, sir, you got to go. But that glad, that, that, that's what God means. He's taking glad and he's taking delight in you. He's seeing this. He's got this exceeding amount of joy directed just towards you. Then he goes on. I got to move on. Then he goes on. He says, with Love. He calms our fears. Especially in our current society, we need a calming of our fears. Not just about the coronavirus. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I, I just say this. I, we posted on our Facebook of what we're doing. We're, we're going to meet as the body of Christ and have church all through this process. Because that's just what I feel like God's called us to do. And I, I just, it's just what we're going to do. We've taken some precautions. As you notice, we're not going to do the greeting time. And if you don't want to hug, don't hug. And you want a handshake, don't handshake. Y'all want to hug me, handshake me, I'm all about it. But if you don't want to, that's cool. We've eliminated even the passing of a plastic bucket around, you know, because of stuff. So we're taking some precautions. And I'm cool with the, even our country taking precautions. It's killing me that there's no sports. It is. I, 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 I think God's using this to reveal some things to me about me and my uh, maybe little unhealthy attachment to sports. But. I, I can even get with some of those precautions. We don't want it to spread like wildfire. But the fear, I can't get. 
I can't get with the fear. I can't get with buying 1,200 packs of toilet paper so there's none in the store for a month for people who might actually need it, right? Or buying up all the water that there is because I'm afraid. I don't know what they're afraid of. Buying all the toilet paper and all the water. I actually heard a story. I, I, yeah, I got a minute. I actually heard a story of a, of a grocery store <laughs> in another city, not in, in Illinois, but and I can't remember the state, but in another city who literally put a limit three on like a do- 15 or 20 different products in their store. And people bought them because the fear said, if they're only limiting to three, I got to have it. Could you imagine if they put limit three on hot sauce? Limit three on Coke? People just snatch it up because here's, fear is so irrational that they'll react before they ever think about what is actually true. Now let's just force, let's just play that into our actual lives and, and move away from this coronavirus for a minute. When you are operating in fear, it's, such, it's so irrational, it'll cause you to shut down and do nothing and believe that the fear is truth rather than what, the, what God has already said about that particular situation or that particular feeling. It'll shut us down. But let me tell you something, and I've quoted 2 Timothy God did not give us a what? A spirit of fear. He did not give us a spirit of fear, but he gave us a spirit of what? Come on, you guys know it. Power, what else is in there? Love, what else is in there? A sound mind. With his love, he calms our fears. Goes on to say, he sings over us. Whoo. He sings over us. The Hebrew, Hebrew word for this actually references a loud and joyful singing over us. So again, it's not one of these, I'm mouthing the words. That's how you might sing here because you got a bad voice. Not me. I got a bad voice and I still sing loud. But you might not like your voice and you might not sing loud. But I subscribe to the fact that I make a joyful noise. It may not be joyful for my neighbor, but it's joyful for me, and my God sees it as a joyful noise, so it is what it is. But he sings over you. Here's the interesting thought in this. That word, that word, that that phrase he sings over us, that word for singing is actually used 33 times in the Old Testament. And every single one of them point to a moment of worship. Every single one of them point to a a, a noise that is made in worship to God. And I've said this before. This ain't worship. Worship doesn't have to be everybody lifting their hands and dancing around because some folks, that's not how they worship. But this right here ain't worship. There's something that physically takes place when you worship, whether you got a little bounce in your step, you got a little shout in your voice, you got a little song in your, in your, that's coming out of you. Something happens. Something has to physically happen in worship. It's, it's Bible. Don't get mad at me. Don't say, oh, that's just not my style. Well, then your style is not God's style, and God made you, so I don't know what image you're reflecting right now because it's not the one that he created. There is something that takes place physically when we worship him. So what does all that mean? It means that God's people in those moments were singing in a way that drew their attention and their physical voices towards God. 
proclaiming, declaring, rejoicing, shouting, crying. I don't know that all of those words right there that I just shared are all found in connection to the same Hebrew word of sing, for sing. They were proclaiming. Sometimes you get into a situation, you just got to proclaim who God is. He's father and he's a good father. You might have to declare some things in worship. He knows my name. And it's not one thing just to sing, he knows my name. Guess what? I'm telling the devil he knows my name. But he knows my name, you better back off of me. Sometimes in that worship is a rejoicing to say, hey, I'm just thankful to be alive today, church. And I'm just jumping and I'm just shouting and I'm just rejoicing in my Savior. Because I'm glad I'm saved. I'm shouting too because that comes with worship as well. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we just got to cry out to the Lord. That's, this is what, these are all the manifestations attached to that Hebrew word for sing. And that's the thing that God was doing over you that then comes out of you and you do right back to him. Worship team, you can come get set. I got to wrap this thing down. Whew. I'm preaching now. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life, pardon me, Aaron, there have been times in my life, you took a long time to get down there, <laughs> there are times in my life that I have not felt so loved by God. I will say that every one of those times is as a reflection of myself and not him, but there have been times in my life where I just felt beat down. Times in my life when I've felt crushed, I've felt abandoned, I've felt like I've cried out and I've shouted and I've rejoiced and I've proclaimed and I've declared and I've done these things and, and I'm still feeling the way that I feel. I'm still struggling the way that I'm struggling. I'm still hurting. I'm still broken. I still can't figure some things out. I'm still confused. Sometimes I'm still angry. I, I've, I've felt that. I've felt every bit of that. But the Bible is clear. That God loves me so intensely that he rejoices over me with singing. And there's something about that thought. That even when I'm confused, even when I'm scared, even when I'm broken, even when I'm beat down, even when I don't feel that he loves me. What I know to be true is what he breathed into humanity. And that's his word. And it stated how valuable I am. It stated how new he's making me. It stated how much he loves me. And I could go on and on and on and on and on all day long talking about who God said I am. And it's when I tap into those moments, say, this is who you said I am, God, that those fears and those disappointments and that anger and that frustration, that bitterness, that confusion, that anxiety, that depression, whatever it is that I'm dealing with in those moments starts to dissipate, starts to disappear. Not because my situation is necessarily getting better, but because my God who made me in his image, I can feel him singing over me. I, f I can feel him and sense that he is speaking to me. Even though I may not understand what he says, but I know he's talking to me. Because the Bible says 
that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And since it says that, that means all those feelings, because all those feelings are often outward, outward things that are pressing against me, I can actually declare, I know you a liar, devil. You belong under my feet because that's what the Bible says. And that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Then the weapon formed against me shall prosper. I am the apple of his eye. I am a chosen generation. I am a royal priesthood. I am loved. I am the head and not the tail. That this God loves me in such a way that he would sacrifice his own son for me. So when you get to that place as we all do at some point in time where we don't know what else to say or where el what else to do, let me just encourage you with this. Find yourselves on your knees. And if all you have left to say is Jesus, let me tell you something, that's more than enough. Because there's something about the name of Jesus. The Bible says it's the name above every name. The Bible says it's the name by all which all men are saved. The Bible says it's the name that even the demons know and tremble at the name of Jesus. The name that everything is healed. It is the name by where, where, where you are delivered and you are set free. It's the name that strongholds come down. It is the name above every name. So if you even get to that place where it's like, I don't feel that love. If you just can, are able to find yourself on your knees, crying out to God, just simply, Jesus! That's all you need.